0: Hello my name is Jared Fairclough and my name is Joe Hennis and welcome to to introduce our guest star our Muppet fan podcast for toughpigs.com In this show Joe and I were taking it in turns to surprise each other with each week's guests this week It's my turn Joe because you were last week. That's how it works.
1: That is how it works. We have a we have a whole system here
0: We have a whole system. So Joe you get to ask a few questions as you know All right, uh, let's, try, let's try to figure out who in. it is Man, Do yeah, it. man.
1: Let's let's jump in feet, uh, feet first. All right, uh, Henson, Muppets, or Sesame? Sesame. Ooh, a Sesame person. Uh, is Ooh. this person a puppeteer?
0: No. Ooh, Ooh. Ooh.
1: <laughs> that it could be anybody. Uh, has this person ever worked at Hooper's store? No. Okay.
0: <laughs> Are you sure? Yes, it's Natalie <laughs> Portman.
1: <laughs> Dressed
0: as a no, other. they have not. Uh, as
1: all righty. Uh, that's neat. Um, has this person uh ever sung a song on Sesame Street? No. Wow. All right, mm. so I'm gonna guess it's not a performer. Uh, is this person a writer? No. Wow. A lot of no's here.
0: Yeah. Uh, come on,
1: boy. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm coming up blank. Uh, okay. Is this person a puppet builder? No. Wow. What? What? What else? What else is there? <laughs>
0: I don't know. It's actually someone who's not connected to anything. It's actually just my dad. It's your dad. <laughs> yeah.
1: Not gonna lie, I really thought of bringing in your dad as a, as a guest. I yeah, thought that would have been go hysterical. For it. Um, go for it. Uh, okay. All right. All right. I'm gonna make a wild guess. I really was hoping I could I could get them all, but I'm not I'm not gonna get this one. Okay. So someone who's not a puppeteer, probably not a performer, not a writer. Um I'm gonna guess that it's uh sesame workshop ceo
0: steve youngwood Incorrect. Joe, my guest today, is an Emmy-nominated director who has worked with some of the biggest names in show business. I'm talking Robin Williams, Robert Redford, Brian Cranston, Gary Shandling, Steve Carell, Scarlett Johansson, you name them, he's directed them. He also directed shows like Freaks and Geeks, Malcolm in the Middle, Santa Clarita Diet, Parks and Rec, Space Force, and he helped create the Larry Sanders show, the Bernie Mac show, and the American adaptation of a little show you may have heard of called The Office. You're looking super confused because you still haven't figured it out. Uh, but long, Joe, long before he did any of that, he directed Big Bird, Oscar, Cookie Monster and Daddy Dodo in the 1985 film Follow That Bird. Joe, would you please welcome to to introduce our guest, uh, Follow That Bird director, Ken Kwapis. Hello, Ken. Hey. Hey, Ken. Hey, Joe. Gr-
1: great to meet you. Uh, I'm Joe.
0: Hey, Joe. I'm Jared. I'm Jared. Hey, Jared.
2: Great to meet both of you. Can you see and hear me? Can you see and
0: hear me? Okay. We can see and hear you perfectly. Fantastic. Well, thank Uh, you. Thank you. The uh, so the concept of the show is Joe didn't know you were coming until literally about ninety seconds ago, Um, (laughs) and I we've done fifteen of these now, and that is the most excited I've seen Joe. Yeah. (laughs) Genuinely jazzed to talk to you
1: because I was telling Jared uh, just before you came on. You know, Follow That Bird to me is, I mean, it's a perfect movie. I, I adore that film. It's a huge part of Sesame Street history, obviously. And, you know, we've been doing Tough Pigs for, for many, many years, uh, you know, our, our Muppet fan site, And we've always said, like, oh, one of these days, we really got to get in touch with, with Ken Kuapis. You know, we really got to talk to him about this movie. And, like, we've just never, like, gone through the motions to actually reach out to you. So, like, I'm just tickled uh-huh. that we finally get this chance to talk to you about I'm this sorry. fantastic film.
2: I'm psyched. I will say in advance that I may be interrupted by a dog that's going to walk into this room and, and, and curl up on the couch. <laughs> that's
1: Even better. Yeah, all the best <laughs> Zoom conversations involve a dog making, making a surprise appearance.
2: So you, are, you are welcome to, <laughs> to excise any of that that you would like. Um, uh, so so any, any, um, any ground rules that I need to know about?
0: No, no. Uh, what, whatever you want to talk about, let's talk about. Oh, yeah, fantastic. swear your head off if you want. Who cares? <laughs> yeah, I'll bleep it. It's yeah. fine.
2: Well, I can. I'm happy to go back to the beginning. I mean, I don't know if you've done a lot of if you focused much on Sesame Street or if you um, we. Yeah, yeah we focus a lot on Sesame
1: Street, you know, equally with with Muppets and all the Henson different Henson projects and all that. Um, you know, it's still a very big part of us. Anything we always say, like anything that Jim Henson touched or influenced, is is in our wheelhouse. Yeah.
2: So well, me, yeah. yeah, Well, let me sort of set the scene a little bit. I, I you know, so the the show premiered in '69, and and it was 15 years later that Warner Brothers. Uh, in conjunction with Jim's company and the children's television workshop decided to, that it was time to make a film starring the Sesame Street characters. And, and this may be something that you and your listeners know, but you know, the initial philosophy of the show Sesame Street was that, you know, that young viewers really lacked the attention span to follow a long story. And so the show, obviously, I mean, it's such a brilliant show, you know, but but the the whole the format was you know a fa- it was a fast paced sketch show, and you know obviously with educational segments designed to resemble commercials. So you know, follow that bird. In contrast, is a full fledged narrative, and uh, and 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 on top of that, it's a very emotional odyssey. You know, the the, you know, the main character really undergoes a kind of journey of self discovery. So. Um, and I trust that your, your listeners know the story of follow that bird, but I'm happy to tee it up (laughs) in case any of them
0: happen. I mean, I mean, yeah, if you want to go through, I mean, out of everyone on this chat, you're definitely the one most qualified to tell the story. (laughs) Um,
2: (laughs) well, I think, well, it's worth, it's worth just sort of reminding your listeners what the setup is. I mean, it's, it's, uh, you know, at the beginning of the film, we meet a, 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 an avian social worker, Miss Finch. Who uh, who who has decided that Big Bird would be happier living with their own kind, and uh, and ships Big Bird off to Ocean View, Illinois, to live with a family of Dodo birds. <laughs> so that's all that I think. Uh, uh, I think that's enough to remind everyone what, yeah. what a delightful story it is. And, yeah, the, and, and um,
1: the general the, plot, yeah. right?
2: Yeah. Well, here's so here's here's my background. So I in the early 1980s, um I had I just come out of film school. I went to USC uh, and got a, I didn't quite finish, but I, got, I was studying to get an MFA in filmmaking. But I left school to direct a couple of after-school specials. And uh, those after-school specials came to the attention of someone at Warner Brothers, a producer who was developing Follow That Bird. The producer was uh, Amy Pascal, who has since gone on to become a, you know, a major fixture in entertainment in the in the feature film world she was a studio chief and a significant producer she recommended me to warner's and the next thing i knew i was and i was living in la but the next thing i knew i was flying to new york to meet jim to meet jim henson who had approval over who would direct this film and um I'm just going to tell you in some detail about that meeting because it was one of the most memorable job interviews I've ever had.
0: Well, I'm Good, quite yeah. lucky in that your uh, your uh, publisher sent me a copy of your book, so I've read oh, the. Uh, so Joe hasn't read this yet, but I've read the chapter on follow that bird. And I mean, you know, we'll get you to tell the story about you know all the meetings you had and that meeting with Jim.
2: Well, here's here's uh, well well Jared, forgive me, you've read this, but I'm going to repeat some of what you already know. Go for it. <laughs> But the so I you know I I met Jim uh, at his office, uh, Henson Associates, Ha, as it was called, uh, on the Upper East Side, and I and I have no I have no memory of what I wore to the job interview, uh, but I distinctly remember that he had a T-shirt and blue jeans on, and he looked you know he he very low key, very hippie-ish. We sat across from each other. we sat across a coffee table from each other. And the coffee table had you know lots of scripts and coffee mugs and, and a, a mysterious green rag that I didn't make make too much note of. I thought maybe the rag was there to clean up a coffee spill. But anyway, so pretty quickly, pretty quickly into the interview, I made a a choice that, in retrospect, I, I'm gonna pat myself on the back. It was a rather bold choice because I, I admitted to Jim that I had never directed a puppet and really didn't know anything about directing puppets. And, uh, you know, basically I was advertising my lack of qualifications for the job in the interview. And, And, you know, who knows, you know, the meeting could have gone south at that point. But in fact, Jim loved that I was being up front. And at that point, he picked up the green rag and put his hand in it. And it was not a rag. It was Kermit. And, uh, (laughs) and Kermit introduced himself to me.
0: Kermit had a massive uh, coffee spill on him that Jim had (laughs) cleaned up.
2: (laughs) (laughs) I literally, I think that's what I honestly thought. Well, you know, whoever cleans up in this office left a rag behind, but it was Kermit and Kermit, um, spoke to me. And then Jim gave me the key piece of advice. He said, um, he said, just talk to the puppeteers like you would an actor. And uh, so our meeting continued. And toward the end of the meeting, Jim uh, said something that pretty much made it clear to me that I had won the job. And he said that uh, he he, he made a request of me. He said on the first day of shooting, he said, what I want you to do is gather all the crew members, especially the camera people, especially the camera department, and, and bring everyone together and ask everyone to raise one hand in the air and hold it there for a solid minute. And uh, as you probably know, like holding your hand, it's actually kind of fatiguing to keep your hand in the air for a long time. But he wanted the crew members, again, particularly camera people to know how taxing it was for the puppeteers to keep their characters uh, on their marks or suspended, you know, for long periods while all sorts of lighting and camera adjustments were being made. That was his actually. That was the one and only demand he made of me. So, uh, and and after that meeting, I I had my first feature film job. Wow! So that's the that's the background. And um, um, but I should say that there was a couple a couple more meetings I had to have. I did have to meet um, a couple people from the children's television workshop. But most importantly, I had to meet Carol Spinney. Of course, and. Uh, So, um, Carol was 51 years old in 1984. That's when we made the film, came out the following year in 85. So he was 51, but he was, you know, big surprise, like so spry, so athletic and, and, and so sweet. Oh my gosh. So, and I mentioned this in my book in my chapter about Follow That Bird, but, you know, now with about three and a half decades of directing under my belt, I mean, I, I, I having endured more than a few, like, really difficult actors, I realized <laughs> you know, how spoiled I was to uh, have someone as, as gentle as Carol uh, collaborating with me on my, my first movie. So...
1: Wow, a, what uh, a like gift. Oh, so I, I have so many... I have so many questions about the production of this film. I, I'm, I'm almost like flabbergasted as to where to start. I, I, some of the other directors that I've talked to who've worked with Muppets or Sesame characters, um, you know, they talk a lot about the challenges of uh, just physically, like how puppets work, where, they, where they're hidden, um, you know, cutting holes in the set, things like that. Um, but you probably didn't have to deal with that a ton because you were dealing with, with Big Bird, who's a full-bodied character who can walk down the street, doesn't have to hide behind a brick wall or, or be stuck in, you know, in a floorboard or something like that. Um, but did you have some experiences where you're like, oh yeah, we'll just have characters like sitting on Sesame street. And someone said to you, well, hang on, you have to, (laughs) you know, stop and think about all these little details that people can't do or people can do and puppets can't do quite so easily.
2: Well, Big Bird, of course, I think you know among the many challenges with Big Bird was just how to. It was more like a pictorial thing: how to frame him with other characters so that the compositions were attractive. I mean, that was one of the tricky things with Big Bird. But we also had to we had to adjust, you know, set pieces to to accommodate Big Bird's height. And I think that my favorite is that for that wonderful you know duet between Whalen Jennings and Big Bird, in in that in the farmer's truck, we retrofitted the truck so that Big Bird could sit in the passenger seat. Now, there's absolutely no logical reason why Waylon Jennings should be driving a truck with this ridiculously tall cab. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> we, we literally, the transportation department on the film, like, redid the cab. So, I mean, it's it looks perfect, but it looks perfectly absurd. <laughs> so um, I would say that for me, what I found astonishing was just the, the puppeteers and their ability to crawl into tight spaces to work from. And, and I mentioned this in the chapter, but the, 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 you know, one of my favorite moments on the set was watching Frank Oz and Jim Henson debate how to crawl into and puppeteer from a tiny biplane for Bert and Ernie when they're scouring the countryside looking for the runaway big bird. And I'm literally, I just, I, I didn't say anything. I just was like a fly on the wall, listening to them talk about, you know, well, if you put your elbow here and I put my knee here, and they, they literally, it was like trying to, it was like talking about how two people could turn themselves into a pretzel. And um, there were a number of, <laughs> but, they're used but, to they it. Loved, but they, but I think oh, they, lo- they loved that. They loved that yeah. challenge. And it was also, you know, like there's, there's a, there's a, a number of, uh, Tricky ones like in, 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 as part of the, the, you know, the group that goes to rescue Big Bird, you know, Cookie is, uh, Cookie Monster is with Gordon and Olivia in a Volkswagen Beetle. So Frank Oz needed to puppeteer Cookie from the backseat floorboards of a Volkswagen Beetle. And I, I have no clue to this day how he did it. Um,
0: <laughs> I don't know. I don't know how he didn't get incredibly motion sick.
2: Oh, I, I well here. Speaking of motion sickness, and, and, and for the scenes with Super Grover, um, Frank and I sat with a camera operator atop a moving crane. So this is <laughs> you know, this was a very low tech movie and a, a very lo-fi movie, I should say, and a very analog era movie. And that one of the many things I love about it. And for scenes of Grover flying, there was no green screen. We literally like hoist, we the we got up high on a crane and rolled down the street and Frank puppeteered, like strapped into the, you know, the, 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 the seat on the top of crane.
1: That's, that's <laughs> one of the reasons why this movie holds up as well as it does because of all these practical effects. When you see Super mm. Grover flying and the trees are, or, are above him, and cookie monsters in the back seat while they're driving down the street or whatever it is, if that was done with. Green screen or any kind of CGI or any kind of computer enhancement, it would be like eh, whatever. But like those characters get to live in the real world, and, right. that, and yeah. the movie really highlights that. Everything feels very, very real. Even the decision of what the locations are—you know, being you know in, in Illinois, being in, in Toadstool with the parade and driving mm. down the street, flying over the the cornfield, all that stuff is uh some very specific references that make us feel like oh they're not like flying over new york city they're not you know in the bottom of the ocean they're in they could be in your backyard basically
2: right well weirdly enough it's it's almost like they the characters are fantastical but they ab- abide by natural laws <laughs> in the
1: movie yes exactly
2: and, 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 for the most and, part and, and yeah for the most part but they they but they but no, I and I, I love that fact. I mean, it was a product of necessity. It was a, it was not a, it was a fairly small budget. But I love the, I, you know, again, you know, I, I love the ingenuity of the people who came up with things like the Countmobile. There are a few shots of the Countmobile uh, driving on its own. And so that. No-
0: well, that's what surprised. That's I actually had that written down because in the book you describe it as built a built to uh, scale automobile that had room for one puppeteer lying on his back performing the count while free driving with the aid of a video monitor. Does that mean that the puppeteer was actually driving that car?
2: Yes. Now, by the way, when I say driving, there was not <laughs> there was not a lot of. Um... There was not a lot of driving. There's only like a few. <laughs>
0: there's a, a couple, couple of shots. Look, like I said, there's, there's only one I can shot. think of when you're counting right. the telephone poles.
2: Yeah, there's definitely. Now, by the way, the side, I'll be very specific, and your listeners will appreciate this. Now, the side angle shots, where we're sort of looking at the count in, in, a, in profile, now, those were not free driving at all. Mm-hmm. Those were, you know, we, we, we attached the, the Countmobile to a camera car. But there are a couple of frontal shots where we just wanted to make sure that, you know, head to toe uh, <laughs> they you know, we saw the whole Countmobile and, and the Count singing. And uh, no, but I, 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 to be honest, I'll, I can go on a little more about the lo-fi quality of things, which I'm super proud of, what I'll Please mention do. a couple of other things. Um, for instance, there's, a, there's a, a wonderful tilt down from Bert and Ernie's biplane back to Waylon Jennings and Big Bird in the truck, which sort of, you know, kind of starts the beginning of the final verse of the, or the final chorus, I guess, of the song. And there was, again, they were not married by visual effects that, you know, that was me on the back of a camera car. And, and, and as soon as I sensed the biplane was about to, you know, fly over us, I, tilt you know, signaled to the camera operator to tilt quickly and also gave a hand cue to, uh, the sound person who then hit the button so that Big Bird and Waylon could, you know, ch- come right in on the cor- top line of the chorus. So it was all, it was wow. all like very, very lo fi And, and I always assumed
1: that Bird, that shot was matted. Like I always assumed no, that those were two different shots that you just blurred it really quickly. I had no idea that that was done no. in camera.
2: No, wow. that was an in-camera effect. And the other really wonderful in-camera effect um, And again, this may be less a a function of budget, more just a a product of me being like a silent movie nerd. But when we we first uh, arrive at the Dodo uh, house, there's a wonderful wide shot of uh, the neighborhood with the Dodo house on a a pole in the background. Well, the way we did that shot was with a foreground miniature. So in fact, uh, there's a pole that's real and there's a neighborhood that's real. And there's a car with big birds' head sticking out of it that's real. That's all driving to- but but the actual house itself was suspended in the foreground of the shot. And the house is no bigger than you know a loaf of bread.
1: Wow. <laughs> so God, they don't make movies like that anymore. Really? Not at all.
2: They <laughs> they the, and I will wow. I will be very happy to share with you a photo of me like framing up. The foreground miniature of the dodo house it's a super cool photo.
1: oh yeah please I do absolutely Love to see that we'll, we'll, we'll put in the show, show notes show. for this episode it's yeah for people yeah. to see and the, the wow.
2: uh, yeah i think that there's a lot of again there are certainly things that were done in post-production for instance the climactic triptych of the song One Little Star where you see Snuffleupagus, Olivia and Big Bird singing, but it was still very much in camera. I just sort of framed each of them in a way that I knew that in post we could marry the shots. It wasn't manipulated in any in, in in sophisticated way. And uh, so I, again, that's one of the, one of the joys of the film. I'm glad I'm glad you're pretty Incredible! It. That
0: is amazing. Oh my God. Uh, yes well, absolutely. so like, you talk about these things. So this purely by chance, even before I had uh, thought to ask if we could interview you, um, a few weeks ago, follow That Bird was on TV here in Australia. Oh, okay. and oh, wonderful. my mother had never seen it. and I just happened to be like it was quite late at night, and I was like, oh yeah, I'll watch the last half an hour of this. And my mum sitting there put her iPad down, and was mesmerized at the scene where Big Bird has to jump from the back of the truck onto the hood of the other car, and she's like, "That was that real?" I was like, "I would assume so." It was nineteen eighty four.
2: Yes, it is very real. Obviously, we weren't that we weren't going very fast, and a lot of the humor of the scene is that we're not yeah. going fast either. But it was Carol Spinney on the back of that truck, you know, standing with that cage door open and. Uh, Now I I don't, I'll be honest with you, it's possible, it's probable that we had for our wide shots, a stunt double for Gordon. Mm -hmm. I I can't imagine that we did any of the wide shots with the actor, but certainly all of the close coverage, he was sort of standing there on the the hood or what was left of the hood after Cookie chewed it up uh, (laughs) of the Volkswagen. But yeah, no, that was, again, all practical. And, 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 um, and again, the fact that, it, I mean, if in, in a different era, a different filmmaker might have, you know, using visual effects might've made the action go faster, meaning the driving could go faster. But I actually loved, I, for me, the charm of it is that it, they're not moving that quickly. You can still get hurt if you fall off a moving vehicle at whatever speed. But but I kind of love the fact that they're having this dialogue about whether or not Bird should jump, <laughs> and Gordon's like
0: giving permission, like it's okay, to jump. Oh, I'm really not supposed to, Big Bird. You can do it now. It's okay. <laughs> Just this once. Just this Just once. This once.
1: I, I have to. I'm, I've always been curious, like what CTW <laughs> said about that scene because you know nowadays. Sesame Workshop has so many different rules that are much more strict than they were when we were young about what the characters can and can't do, and that's the one thing where it's like not in a million years would they have allowed a shot of Big Bird jumping from a moving vehicle. And obviously, you know, it may have even been uh, uh, you know a, a no go back then, but it's the climax of the movie; like something big has to happen. So, I, right. do, do you remember getting any well, pushback about that decision?
2: No, not at all, and and. Now the writers of the screenplay were Sesame Street veterans Tony Geis and Judy Freudberg, both neither of whom were with us, and and they were just fantastic, such smart writers. So they everything, you know, was approved by the Children's Television Workshop as well as Henson and Warner. So there were three, you know, I was serving three different entities, but that you know, you know that, but that no nobody nobody raised any alarm there were no red flags about that nor there was there any red flag simply about the you know the idea that the slaves brothers you know joe flarity and dave thomas kidnapped big bird and dye him blue which you know, <laughs> <laughs> which is
0: traumatizing
1: it's, it's traumatizing we,
2: and i can we child can abuse. we talk about that
1: for a second <laughs> it is child abuse can we can we talk about that for a second because i feel like well first of all Anytime someone finds out that you directed Fall That Bird, is their first reaction, "Oh my God, the scene where Big Bird is blue makes me cry every time." Or like <laughs> you traumatized me with that scene because whenever well, I, I hear it come up in conversation, that's the first thing people tell me. Yeah,
2: no, it. it I, I not only have many people told me it was traumatizing. I was sent a. a, a, a some somebody posted a, a list of favorite childhood films that traumatized them. And this was like on the top of the list. <laughs> and, uh, That's got to feel like, good, right? <laughs> the most, yeah, exactly. Well, the, well, first of all, it's, it's, it is, it's like abusive, you know, to die, uh, you know, a child blue, but it's also the most heartbreaking scene in the film where he's like singing this, sure. like, you know, this incredibly sad song. And um, the, 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 um, You know, I I would say that for me that the the real takeaway, though, is that putting aside, quote, people being traumatized, the real thing is that people were involved. People were emotionally invested in Big Bird. People were so emotionally invested in him that they, you know, that I mean, that's that to me is the beauty of the film. Ultimately, is that, you know, you don't you don't usually cry at you know Big Bird sketches on the show. You don't you know, but this story actually is very emotionally i think it's quite depthful and 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 it sort of reaches a you know kind of a either low point or high point depending on your point of view with that scene where he's dyed blue and of course as sure. uh, you know and he jumps from the you know truck to the Volkswagen dyed blue and then of course he shows up on Sesame Street again all yellow and i have no clue why <laughs> <I don't,
1: laughs> he took a I'm bath sure. he's fine he took a bath <laughs> So, uh, I have a couple of uh, very hyper specific questions about about the Bluebird of happiness sequence. Um, We'll see if you remember any of these things. So first of all, the kids who are watching Big Bird sing this song. uh, Mm -hmm. It's a series of twins throughout the whole room. Um, it's been kind of speculated In the fan community of like Was it just a cool thing like cool, cool visual or was there an actual Deeper meaning to the fact that There's all these different twins watching this show And you if know, you have I, no memory I, of this that's fine too
2: <laughs> No but I have this funny I don't remember I, I, I'd have to I doubt seriously that it was in the script I have a hunch That it was an idea that Probably came up in a meeting with the extras casting director, and 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 I mm. probably thought that's a cool idea, but I think yeah. I also liked the idea that the villains are siblings, and then we just basically cut to a, lo- a lot of cutaways. We have several cutaways of, of twins or siblings in the audience, and uh, but I but I don't think there was much more. <laughs> thought given than that but it's 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 a delicious little detail so I'm, I'm, I'm it really is yeah be- and I, I actually like yeah. that
1: description especially because the movie really is all about family and, and learning who your family is and you know families can be good or bad as shown by the, the sleeze brothers uh or they could just be you know audiences who are get very sad watching their favorite characters sing a sad song in a cage
2: yeah. i mean you know the um, whole the, the mission of the you know the show, the whole mission of the show is to, to, uh, you know, make audiences feel that you can be comfortable with all kinds, you know, with monsters, True. with humans. And and so for me, um, you know, that, you know, un- underneath everything with Follow That Bird is the idea that you, you know, not only is it about leaving home to find a home, but it's it's really about discovering that you don't need to be with your own kind to be happy.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah.
1: Uh, in the in the same sequence, while Big Bird is singing, uh, mm-hmm. when we see him in the cage, he's wearing like a giant pair of trousers, like like I think they're plaid pants. Uh, mm-hmm. Why? <laughs> like because his <laughs> legs weren't like it didn't matter if his legs were orange or or blue or whatever. It was just the feathers that were dyed.
2: You know, that's a that decision was made by the Henson people. That was part of the Henson, you know the Henson people you know. Came up with that costume detail, and I think it makes sense though because the blue bird of happiness is a character that bird is forced to play. So he's you know he's not only blue but he's sort of costumed. It's sort of a, mm-hmm. it, it it sort of adds it. For me, it it added an extra layer of humiliation. Not that being dyed blue you know isn't enough, but it's like right but, yeah. But uh, but uh, and and it it sort of adds to the uh pathos of the scene um but I don't remember yeah. a lot of discussion about it
1: I a, and actually ruffle. as you were as you mm-hmm. were just saying that I had forgotten and jared you just saw the movie more recently than I have yeah he's wearing like a mm-hmm. white ruffle around yeah, he's his neck well, right? Right. Yeah. yeah he's got the collar right yeah right so, you know, so yeah it's, it's a whole costume
2: like a Shakespearean you know rough it, it's it's it it also I, and I think there's a little bit of a you know you can find a, an antecedent in something like, you know, Pinocchio, where I think that Pinocchio is wearing a costume when he's forced to perform. Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah. and uh, But yeah, it, it, it's a remarkable scene if I may. And, and, you know, I, I you know, I, I feel like it's, it's amazing that, People still single it out, not always as dramatizing, but just as powerful.
0: Well, I'm sure you've probably. Yeah, it's absolutely powerful. I'm sure you've probably heard about this, but uh, I've just looked it up because I couldn't remember where it was. Uh, the Metropolitan Museum of Art last year had an installation on the roof of a blue big bird. Um, oh, wow. on, Yeah, I'm like, Joe, I think you've. Uh... Well, I, I'm, I'm looking for the booklet. Hang on. I have
1: it somewhere. Okay.
0: Wow. Edit this
2: out, Jared. <laughs> huh. Wow. I didn't know.
0: About yeah. We'll that. see if we can find you the photo. Yeah. Here we go. All right. So got Joe's got the photo All coming right. up. So it, it was on the roof. So it was on the roof of the Metropolitan Museum
1: of Art here in New York City. Uh, here, that's the back of the booklet. Oh, if you could see it. Wow. That's a we'll face. we'll put the show uh, in the show notes. Yeah, uh, pictures in the show notes oh, okay. for the, uh, uh, so which so the um uh the artist whose name is Alex DeCourt, he did this because uh I made him blue in part because of Fall That Bird but also he grew up watching uh, Sesame Strass uh, yep. where or one of the one of the international um uh, Sesame Streets which has uh, Pino instead of Big Bird. Uh, who was who was a blue bird? So he kind of oh, gave an homage to both things, but you know, Pinot and Pino is another, another
2: full body costume bird. I didn't know. I don't. That's great. Yeah, yeah.
1: all the international Sesame Streets that that, that do their own co production. Uh, they have a lot of the same characters. Like They, they all have an Elmo. they all have a Grover, uh, but the rest of their cast, they have unique characters and they all have one big walk-around character. Sometimes it's a bird, sometimes it's something else, yeah. but it's always kind of interesting to see You know, their extended families. You know, they all have their own grouch character, that sort of thing. It's pretty neat.
2: You know, I, I, was um, When I got the job to direct the film, I realized that there were a ton of Sesame Street characters I didn't know who were all in the, in the film. And, and I mentioned this in my book, but I found, I unearthed the original cast list. I have it right in front of me actually. And, and um, these are the characters that are in the film that I didn't know. Um, Great. <laughs> ready? We've got Gladys, right. the, Gladys the theatrical mm-hmm. cow, Kelly uh, Monster, of course. Uh, Buster the Horse, I didn't know. Mm-hmm. Uh, Prairie Dawn. I think one of the few female Muppets at the time, yep. right? Yeah, uh, for the time and, for sure. Yep. And, and another one, Grunjetta. Um, mm-hmm. Forgetful Jones. Uh Barkley, an astonishing character. Uh, Harry Monster. Harry Monster is pretty popular. Captain Vegetable. <laughs> I don't even know if I remember. I <laughs> oh, love Captain, Captain Be- Vegetable. <laughs>
1: <laughs> i mean he uh, made he was in one sketch so i'm surprised but it's a very famous sketch possibly show up somewhere else it's a very famous yeah. sketch but like he's never i mean at that time he had never been on on the streets you know it's not like he had um, you know hung out with the rest of the characters fairly, yeah
2: definitely in the ensemble uh scenes and follow that bird sully after um, mm-hmm. nobel Prize, uh right. Biff the, Biff the hard hat i think was fairly yeah. popular uh two two-headed monster yeah. um Mumford the Magician, and of course, Many Honkers, and um, and this is, you know, this is an important thing. We shot the film in Toronto. We shot in 1984. There were a lot of puppet characters, and, and we were able to uh, tap into the wonderful group of puppeteers that Jim groomed for the show Fraggle Rock. That was a, you know, a, a Toronto-based production, so a lot of our characters most of them, i would say all of them except for like the the major characters were puppeteered by the fraggle rack puppeteer puppeteers and and they were such a fantastic group so good well that's you great
0: mention as well um since you oh sorry you mentioned as well uh that there's uh in your book that there is a there's one shot of a tiny little red uh puppet <laughs>
2: Absolutely. Well, you know what? It's a significant scene, actually. It's the climax. It's really the climax of the film after Big Bird has returned and Miss Finch shows up determined to find another foster bird family for him. And at this point, uh, Maria, uh, you know, basically gives the, you know, gives the the mission statement of the film and the show and, and, and lists all of the different creatures and people that live together in harmony on Sesame Street. And it, it gave me a chance to do a, a, a shot. I'm very proud of a, a 360 degree pan of the entire Sesame Street set and all the characters. And uh, deep in the background, uh, poking uh, its head out of a window is uh, is Elmo who uh, Elmo was uh, at the bottom of the puppet cast list. Uh, uh, Elmo was listed <laughs> as Elmo monster. Yep. And uh, so <laughs> Elmo has a, has a cameo in follow that bird before uh, being
0: plucked from obscurity. It's funny. <laughs> plucked uh, from so when they re-released the film, I'm going to say on DVD, this is probably Joe, it's- any idea? 2008, yeah, it
1: was 2009. Probably like, if, maybe even earlier earlier than that yeah sometime in the they mid- had 2000s, a yeah.
0: shot of big bird then all the characters in the film and elmo's on it and fans oh, are going yeah. what <laughs> elmo's not in this like elmo's in this film for a genuinely maybe 13 frames that's about it exactly. yeah
1: <laughs> and and whoever
0: it was who approved
1: that that dvd cover art was probably like thank god elmo's in it for two seconds because we can elmo's sell sells. it yeah like yeah exactly not false. Well, Although, uh, sorry. Go ahead.
2: Oh no no no! I I you know I I have to say I I I you know I was very delighted when a few years later when Elmo sort of came into prominence that, that somebody needed to point it out to me. <laughs> I, I didn't. Know that. I didn't know. I didn't know there was a star waiting in the wings there, like in, in the background of the scene. Well,
0: you mentioned Amazing. um, You know you read through the list of characters you didn't know. Um, Mm -hmm. And all but one of them in the film, besides maybe a honker, um, sort of are only in it for either a line or just a cameo, whatever it is. But you mentioned uh, Tally Monster. And Tally is a very big part of that film. That was also the first time Marty Robinson was, um, was playing him. So what was it like then having to... This character you didn't know, and especially as Marty's finding it as well... What was it like for you making, you know, having this character be such a big pile of film if you didn't know a ton about them?
2: Well, it's funny because it's possible that Marty finding that character really was kind of fed into who that character is in a way because telly is all about not, not having a point of view. Or not, or not being sure, or being ambivalent, or always seeing two sides of things. So maybe the fact that Marty was sort of searching for the character really, really supported that. And but I, I, I love Telly Monster, and, and I would say that you know very quickly into shooting the picture, uh, I, I really gravitated towards Telly and uh, and loved Marty, and of course Marty was doing double duty yeah. uh, because he was also the front half of uh, Snuffle Up, Snuffle Up, i Snuffleupagus. And
1: right,
2: um, yeah. And I think that in, in the back half of snuffleupagus on the film was Bryant uh Bryant Young, who, if I'm not mistaken, you please correct me if I'm wrong. Did Bryant Young create and perform Big Bear or Bear in the Big Blue House?
1: No, you're thinking of Noel McNeil, who ah, plays, Noel McNeil. Noel McNeil. Yeah, because Noel is Big Bird when Carol is not in Big Bird. Um I, know. I know he's told oh, me the right. story about noel was i believe uh was in the big bird outfits uh during the north by northwest scene you know having the the plane kind of clip him, because you know like if we're gonna lose a puppeteer like let it not be carol spinney i guess
2: (laughs) oh no you know what i i thank you for reminding me noel was fantastic and i happen to think bear in the big blue house is one of the great unsung shows it's it's just remarkable that character is remarkable
1: absolutely yeah
2: I'll mention one thing about North by Northwest, and that is, it, you know, I had a fairly free hand, you know, especially considering it was the first film I directed. I had a pretty free hand, you know, coming up with gags and different things, things that weren't in the script. and And the North by Northwest homage was completely my idea. I literally, I thought, well, we've got Big Bird in a cornfield, and we've got a biplane swooping down. Why don't we go for it? And Carol loved the idea. It's oh, so great. Uh, and, so we just got a, I think we probably, you know, found a VHS of North by Northwest and pulled up the scene and, and, and pretty much copied it shot for shot. And um, the, you know, and I, I feel like very blessed in the sense that, you know, you know, in a way, even though this was a film for Warner Brothers, Jim Henson's company and Children's Television Workshop, in a funny way it was, nobody was over, nobody was looking over my shoulder or rather nobody was, you know, I I kind of was able to do a lot of things that, uh, with a lot of freedom and, and, you know, and I guess for me, one of the things I'd love to mention is I had a a free hand in like choosing the crew and the, you know, and the, and the cameo cast. Oh yeah. And, uh, yeah. And the, the, um, that, you know, the, the, the cinematographer of Follow That Bird was Curtis Clark, who had gained you know, renown a couple of years earlier, photographing this incredibly visually elegant film directed by Peter Greenaway, The Draftsman's Contract. Not the person you'd say, okay, got to get that guy to direct Follow yeah. That Bird. And our production designer, Carol Spear, in 1984 the most prominent things on her resume were she had done basically every david cronenberg film oh, wow. she art directed mm. she art directed you know scanners and uh, uh oh my gosh see you know uh, what were the other ones she did uh, the brood videodrome and of course you know what do you what do you how do you follow that well follow that bird, of course and and, <laughs> uh, and i and i and i feel like our our cameo cast is in a way, it's you know, kind of a little funky and edgy. I mean, I, it, it, Sandra Bernhardt had, you know, just starred in The King of Comedy, and I invited her to be the waitress in the Grouch Cafe. And, and one of my favorite cameos, the wonderful uh, late director and actor, Paul Bartel, who directed such wonderful, you know, cult films, was like Eating Raoul, and he, mm-hmm. I invited him to be the the chef in the Grouch Cafe, and he he has one of my favorite bits when he serves the tossed salad by loading it onto a catapult.
1: <laughs> and it's funny because I've been re-watching uh, or, or watching for the first time a lot of um, Joe Dante movies and oh, yeah. like like stuff from the you know the low budget B movie era. And Paul Bartels in all those things, like he's like uh, you know. Like it's just like then the first few things I think I was watching Piranha, and I'm like, God, that guy looks so familiar. Who is he? And I've seen him in the last few things. I've oh, it's the Grouch (laughs) Cook. Of course it is. Well, he's
2: he's in a lot of those uh, a lot of those B movies, and I think he and Joe Dante actually co-directed one called Hollywood Boulevard. And um, I
1: watched that. Yeah, uh,
2: Yeah. but Paul was such a sweetheart, and and uh, he had. I think the film he directed right before coming to Toronto to play the Grouch Cafe chef was uh, "Lust in the Dust," <laughs> and, uh, but also I'm just you know the fact that uh, you know I was I was a longtime Second City TV super fan, so you know just to ask Dave Thomas and Joe Flaherty to play the Sleaze brothers, to get you know John Candy to come aboard to play such the a police great officer shot
0: where he just play. picks the kid up. The kid just points that book.
2: <laughs> <laughs> that, that is a great bit. And I do actually remember, like, you know, below frame a couple of PAs there <laughs> to live, help lift the kid up. <laughs> and actually, that boy who, uh, who, 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 you know, points at the Sleaze Brothers, he's in one of my favorite scenes in the whole film. He's the boy who, uh, who was stuck at the top of the Ferris wheel at the slaves brothers carnival and they won't let him down until he gives them another nickel and <laughs> and you know so i i remember saying to Curtis clark I was a cinematographer what's like the what's the most dynamic shot we can do of this young uh, this boy and this Ferris wheel and so we managed it's it's only on the screen for a few seconds but there is a shot where we somehow got the camera above the ferris wheel looking straight down at this boy as he reaches for a nickel in his pocket and drops it down into joe flaherty's hands it's really it's a remarkable shot
1: and uh, that's a great shot too where the the nickel falls into joe flaherty's hand and then he just slaps it on the bar (laughs) all in one movement bam you know well it
2: was again i just feel like that you know people like carol spear curtis clark and even in post-production having the you know legendary van dyke parks uh, uh, aboard to do our underscore uh, just everybody kind of just kind of raised the level of the picture it's a great group definitely and and uh and then you know last but not least waylon jennings we saw we talked about him i i uh, i didn't i wasn't really as big a I wasn't a fan of Waylon Jennings. I, I, I grew to be afterwards, but uh, just the idea that, you know, you know we had the, the outlaw music pioneer, you know, singing mm-hmm. a duet with Big Bird and just the combination of their voices, you know, his you know, gravelly hard edge sound. And I don't know how you describe Big Bird's singing voice, <laughs> 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 but uh, it was perfect. Well, I love the fact together. that yeah, you
0: have these two completely opposing uh, you know, characters, I guess. Um, and then Carol Spinney uh talked a lot in his life about how close he and Waylon Jennings became. Like they spent Christmases together. Oh, mm-hmm. I love that. yeah, oh, they became fantastic. extremely close is- friends. Um, and yeah, that's that's the beginning of a beautiful friendship in that film.
2: Oh, you know what? I I yeah. want to know more about that. I I, I want to I'll I'll seek out some Carol interviews to find out. I don't think yeah I don't remember him mentioning that in his. Uh, autobiographical documentary. No,
1: it's probably not in the book or in the documentary. Yeah. But I, I, I remember asking him about it. Um, I think I may have just asked him, who's the your favorite celebrity that you worked with? And he oh. told me about how um, he was such a huge fan of of Waylon Jennings before the film. And then getting to share that scene and the song is so good. I really, I my wife and I sing that song on every road trip. And like, it's almost a crime that there's not like a good clean version out there, you know, like on Spotify that we can just like put on or like some that no one's ever covered that yeah. song, any of the songs from this movie, as far as I know, there, like the music yeah, of movie no, is no. great. The music
2: is good. And the music was written. all the songs were written by um, Warner brothers, music staff writers, all housed in Nashville. So in, during pre-production I had the pleasure of going to Music Row in Nashville, where at the Warner Brothers, you know, music house—I guess you'd call it—it was basically like just a, you know, a fraternity house where once a day all these songwriters would show up and hang around and come up with songs. It was—it was, you know, it, it's the Nashville equivalent of Tin Pan Alley or the Nashville equivalent of like the Brill Building, you know, and um, but it was a. a, a you know, but those songwriters, did this, they did a wonderful job. I mean, one star. I One of I my that song favorite so
0: songs, and uh, I actually listened to this a couple of times when Carol Spinney passed away because it was just, um, I don't know, it just meant a lot to me. It was the Grouch Anthem, which opens the film, which is such oh, a great yeah, song. Yeah. Um, and I also love the idea of, all right, we're going to start the Sesame Street movie with nothing to do with the rest of the film. We're just going to sing a funny song for two and a half minutes and then get into it.
2: You know, I, I believe that, um, it, and I'm not sure I should take credit for it, but I believe the homage to Patton was my idea. I'll have to dig up a copy of the script to see if it was in an early draft. But I, I remember I don't I don't I don't know why, but I just love the idea of a giant American flag at the beginning of the picture. It's and it beautiful. Forward, it's a beautiful it shot.
1: Yeah,
2: yeah. And um, by the way, speaking of uh, Carol and Oscar. Um, I, I'm forgetting about one character that's sort of astonishing, and that's Bruno, the, the uh, Oscar show, yeah. And, and I don't know how often that character was in use, but, uh, and you obviously you know the character. So Bruno is Carol in a full body suit carrying a trash can with Oscar in it. So one hand is a dummy hand that's holding the trash can handle so that Carol can puppeteer Oscar. And when Bruno walked on the set, adults did a double take because it seemed to be just uncanny that there there was no floor. There was nothing, there was no mask. There was nothing masking the puppeteer. There was a, 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 a man holding a trash can. There was nothing under the trash can and there was a live character inside Oscar. It was astonishing to see you know, grown grown people just like flabbergasted by this simple ingenious,
0: you know, uh, amazing. I mean, of I mean man, that's just Carol Spinney, like in a nutshell. I mean, you. I mean, you talk a little bit in your book okay. as well about the opening when you meet Big Bird. He's on roller skates, and that was Carol Spinney, and he did uh, yeah. episodes of Sesame Street on a unicycle as Big Bird. Yeah, it baffles me that Insane, he could do this. Man. Like what a what a man!
2: It is baffling, and also that you know that when he's on skates, he's not just skating a straight line. He'll he'll kind of pirouette. He'll do some moves. So here he is. He's got you know his right hand straight up in the air, operating the beak, and his and he's looking straight down at this you know little one inch monitor strapped to his chest and roller skating. And not knocking anything over, and I—it's like I'm just, oh my gosh, and um, it, it was just on every level. I do remember um, Carol may have talked about this in some interview or another, but Carol has spent, or Carol spent so much of his professional life with his right hand—I'm almost sure it was his right hand—right hand in the air—that he he said he had a, you know, he had a kind of an overdeveloped right shoulder muscle that he yeah, actually sure. used to work I mean, out that happens just, too he just worked out with, you know, he worked with hand weights uh, to kind of make sure his left hand and left, you know, sh- arm and shoulder muscle <laughs> matched his right. <laughs> but
1: uh, uh, I want to go back to um, talking about some of the celebrities that you, uh, that you had in this movie, the one that we didn't mention, and you may not have worked with them because it could have been, a, you know, a, a B crew uh, was Chevy chase as uh, Chevy, you know, yeah. still read the news and, um, First of all, I noticed that all these uh, I assume that Sandra Bernhardt is also Canadian, but I know the rest of them are, uh, which is interesting. Just that you filmed in Canada Were you kind of locked into using Canadian uh, talent when it came to the celebs.
2: No, not at all. I, in fact, well, let's say, well, Whalen is not Canadian. Sandra, I don't think oh, sure. is Canadian. And, and um, Paul Bartel is not Canadian chevy you're absolutely correct we shot chevy's segment while i was in canada so he was in los angeles at the time and Mm -hmm. uh and a a friend of mine taped his uh news segment uh but no there was no there, there was no financial pressure to do that in fact if i'm not mistaken like in 1984, both Joe Flaherty, Dave Thomas lived in, in, in near Toronto, but I believe both Joe and John Candy were living in Los Angeles. So mm-hmm. there was, I mean, they're obviously Canadian, but uh, there was no particular pressure to hire Canadian celebrities for the film. Um, are we missing anyone? I think that's all of them. I think. But I think the, that's everybody. The, uh, But I have to say, I, again, I was, I didn't get, you know, John Candy came aboard only for the one day, but he was a total sweetheart. But Joe and Dave, I, you know, I just really enjoyed getting to kind of watch them in action. And and I was, you know, at times I, I I would just forget to call cut because, you know, they would, they would just start improvising. And I would just (laughs) say, I feel like I had the best seat in the house watching these two masters (laughs) just kind of riff off each other. And, um, and I and I had the pleasure. Um, I'm not sure how many years later it was, but I I got the pleasure of directing Joe Flaherty again when he played Linda yeah. Cardellini's dad in the, the show. Oh, sure. Yeah, show of which we're all big fans
1: film. of. Yeah. Uh, so since you were the one to choose uh, the celebrity cast, was there anyone that you you remember wanting for the film that you weren't able to get?
2: I absolutely. Um, I wanted the Grouch Diner to have a pianist, like someone playing piano. And uh, we asked Randy Newman if he would uh, (laughs) play, play the Grouch Cafe pianist. And I mean, I can't imagine. So possibly tom waits i can't imagine anyone better oh, suited in
0: the, the grouch cafe fantastic you know, tom waits
2: as it. a grouch pianist. oh that would be perfect and like playing <laughs> but, like
1: the diviest of dive like in a diner is just right. chef's guest perfect um but anyway, you so also there were, oh sorry oh but, i was just gonna
2: say it wasn't any real role for you know there wasn't any dialogue there wasn't really a song So it was really just to see if Randy Newman would be game and he was uh, not available, but that was my, that was the one that that got away. That would have been my dream.
1: (laughs) Were you also involved with uh, choosing some of the celebrity voice casts Uh, like Sally Kellerman as Miss Finch or Lorraine Newman and Eddie Deason as some of the Dodos. Absolutely.
2: So Sally Kellerman and Eddie Deason and Lorraine were definitely my choices. I mean, I worked with the casting director, obviously. And, um, and playing uh, Daddy Dodo is one of my oldest friends, oldest and best friends, Brian Hofeld. And um, and then playing uh, Marie Dodo, oh my gosh. I, I'm uh, Kathy forgetting. Silvers. Her name is, yeah,
1: yeah Silver, Kathy thanks. Silvers, yeah. yeah they, <laughs> we both have it open in front of us. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs>
2: She did a wonderful job. And uh, of course, I've been an Eddie Beeson fan ever since seeing him in films like 1941, and I, I want to hold your hand, and uh, I, I mean, can, can you imagine a better voice for Donny? Oh, no way, yeah.
0: perfect. Old, of them are perfect. And Sally, yep. and
2: Sally was great. I mean, mm-hmm. Sally was wonderful, and it was um, again sort of a, a treat to uh, t- t- just to, to work with people who I, you know, I, I idolized from watching them in you know films like Mash, or needless to say, you know, being a fan of the original cast of Saturday Night Live, getting to work with Lorraine Newman and. Got to hear some good stories about all the
0: misadventures during the early days of SNL. Yeah. Um, That's the best. I love it. You know, uh, before you joined us, as I sort of did the introduction, I went through some of your credits. And it's funny, like, I I asked for the interview, and then I went, oh, look up just a little, because I know you've done The Office and stuff like that, but I was like, oh, look up the other stuff. And then the more I read, the more I got intimidated as I realized Freaks and Geeks, Malcolm in the Middle, uh, Parks and Rec, Space Force, uh, all that sort of stuff. Um, You know, with such like a massive career you've had over, you know, nearly 40 years since you've done Follow That Bird, how often are you getting to talk about Follow That Bird anymore?
2: Well, not enough. I I mean, I, I, I love the film. It's funny because I feel like there's, for some reason, there's been renewed interest in the film. I can't explain why. Maybe it's that people who saw it when they were you know, young, when they were the target audience are now of an age that they're looking back at it. And, and, and so many people sort of point to it as either like the first thing they saw, the first movie they saw, or just a, a, a real pivotal movie experience. And, but I, I will say that the thing I, I love to talk about when people ask about the film was, and again, I'm kind of repeating what I said earlier, but I was unprepared when I directed the film To to, I was unprepared for how emotional the the story is. And 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 I think I was, you know, I let's see, I was 25 or 26 when I directed the film. I was very young. I was just out of film school. And I think I was more, to be honest, I think I was more of a film fan than a storyteller at that point in my life. I I could I could talk a lot about favorite films and favorite images from films, but I hadn't really thought of myself as a storyteller. And I, I think that you know it wasn't until i was well into shooting the film that i that it hit me how emotionally strong the story is you know the story of leaving home to find home or or the story of finding who your people are and things like that and and that, that was kind of a big discovery for me as a director and 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 i've often said that you know it took a an 8 foot bird to you know teach me that one of my jobs as a director was to become a good student of human nature so I, I feel like, I, I, I'm i glad that that's where I started with that story. And, and uh, I mean, I, literally, I mentioned earlier about the, the challenges of photographing Big Bird, but I think there was a moment during shooting where Big Bird ceased to be an object for me and became the subject of the story. So that was a big, that was kind of a major turning point for me as a, as a filmmaker.
1: Wow. I mean, that's the great thing about Big Bird. He's just, still teaching no matter what your age he's still teaching us
0: everything so what you're saying is that we all have to thank big bird for giving us michael scott (laughs) (laughs) it all just (laughs) came together really well
2: (laughs) i I, I think yes i i see that connection every day
0: (laughs) (laughs) um Joe, do you have anything else before we yeah how okay
1: so again in the in the bluebird of happiness scene there's a, a moment where a single tear comes down big bird's beak and yes. I, I'm curious it looks at equal times like a real drop of water like a something like a puppet like something being dragged uh, you know with a string, or like a drop of mercury even because it's got this like beautiful shine to it. Do you recall how you did that one shot?
2: Again, I think totally lo-fi. I think that it's a, a practical tear meaning it's a piece of material. I don't remember Mm -hmm. what the tear was made of that we uh, pulled along uh, Big Bird's uh, face, you know, and and uh, I don't recall exactly how we did it. Um, Meaning, and I and I don't I I don't remember much discussion about it with the puppet workshop with the Muppet Workshop people. Again, one of the one of the great things. I mean, again, I was I was I was the new kid on, on the team in a way. And and I um, far be it for me to tell the Henson specialists how to you know create puppet effects, so they were I think they were on top of that from the get go. Like they knew the tear was important, so
1: they you know came up with a good way to do it. So the movie, so the movie came out in 1985, and I believe it was right before this that Mister Snuffleupagus became you know quote unquote real, you know, or basically revealed to the world that he's not just Big Bird's imaginary friend. Um, and the movie really balances that line very cleverly where, you know, nobody addresses, you know, Big Bird doesn't say, well, I sent a letter to my friend, Mr. Snuffleupagus and all the adults say who, um, but also Snuffy is definitely kept separate from everyone else. It's always kind of either in Big Bird's nest area or in the park where we see him later. Um, was this uh, something that uh, you were kind of encouraged to keep nebulous so that people could kind of see Snuffy in either way? Uh, or was that even like a conscious thing while you were filming this?
2: It was, it was not something I ever spoke about with the writers or with Marty or anyone. Now my hunch is, and, and you may know this better than I, you certainly know, will know it better than I, we shot the film in the, in the early summer of 84. It came out in August of 85. Now it's entirely possible that that shift in, in how, uh, snuffy is represented on the show happened after we shot the film but before it came out so that's it, it's my because i don't remember any discussions about uh keeping it vague or i mean i only thought of snuffy as bird's imaginary friend so it's it, it's it's entirely possible that the powers that be at sesame street made that decision after the film was shot so again that's i'm not i'm not uh i don't know enough about the show uh, to to answer that. I can tell you that's all right. The week, the week I can tell you that the week before the film came out, uh, Rambo, first blood part two was released. <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> Real competition for Fall Leopard.
2: I was gonna say that happily not our target audience.
0: No. Well You're right. You've talked a little bit about uh, in your book as well about the preview screening and just yes. And just that it maybe didn't go as well as you might have kind of hoped.
2: <laughs> well, it was it was one of the it was one of the strangest preview screenings ever. First of all, it, I'm not sure we needed a, a preview screening, but uh, but I actually asked for one, and the studio kind of begrudgingly agreed because they did they didn't really. I mean, I, I'm going to put it really bluntly you know that. Follow That Bird was kind of the runt of the litter at Warner Brothers. There were they—they they had a lot of big pictures coming out, and 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 Follow That Bird was you know something they loved. They loved the film, but it was not you know one of their tentpole pictures. So we had this uh, preview screening in which the, the entire audience was uh, children, young children, and it was held at a screening room. It was actually held at the screening room in Toronto uh, that part of the film lab, I think it was called Medallion Lab. And um, a healthy size screening room, a lot of seats. And when I arrived for the screening, I entered the back of the theater and it was, well, at least for the moment, I thought the room was empty. I saw no one. And I I even said to someone, "Where's the nobody's here. And, And they said, no, no, the place is packed. And I started to walk down the aisle and noticed that actually every seat was filled, but the seat backs were so high that no i couldn't see anyone they were so little and also the seat <laughs> back so high that the children in the audience couldn't see the screen so oh, no I, so, so i basically got in front of the whole group and instructed all the children or however many wanted to to stand up in their seats to watch the film so the 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 premiere screening or the the first the first the unveiling of follow that bird was seen by a group of children standing up, bouncing, a lot of bouncing in their seats. Some of the bouncing kids is good. leaned. Yeah. Bouncing is good. Some leaned against the seat back in front of them. Some leaned against the seat back behind them. Some of them fell off their seats and <laughs> climbed back up. And and I would say that it was it, it, needless to say, it was not possible to gauge anything from the from how they reacted because they were They were having a blast bouncing
0: while they were watching the film. (laughs) Wow, Uh, chaos! So,
1: So. how often uh, do you find yourself revisiting this film? Because, like, for for people like me and Jared, like we rewatch. I mean, you could tell. Like, I we've memorized the whole thing, you know, shot for shot. I watched it three weeks ago. We watch it all the time. Yeah, right. Uh, But do you do you watch your old work a lot? Well, I I
2: I don't. But and Jared knows this. But I, I you know, about a year ago, I published a book about directing, and it's it's part, partly about you know how to direct, and it's partly a memoir. And so I, I, and I'm a bit of a pack rat. I have kept everything, everything, every call sheet. I have every every, the paper. I have every piece of paper associated with anything I directed. And so I had the pleasure of going through all the follow that bird notes and papers and storyboards and and in fact going through it reminded me about Randy Newman being a, a, on the wish list for the Grouch diner and um, but so I I was able to really relive it and and there's nothing like looking at a call sheet if your listeners don't know what that is it's basically the daily schedule of shooting so on any given day you know it'd be like you know how many how long did we spend on any given scene etc Um it really brought the whole experience back to me just looking at you know the first thing up on a Wednesday morning was you know shooting a shot of Super Grover you know flying into the 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 top of the Volkswagen Beetle you know things like that so uh and it was the first experience I had as a feature director so naturally it 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 remains very vivid for me uh but I, I guess what I'm when I've looked at it, I haven't really watched the whole film top to bottom in a long time, but when I look at scenes, I mean, you you always kind of like, think about choices you made that maybe you would have done differently, but mostly I'm just, and again, forgive me if I sound like I'm bragging, but mostly I'm sort of impressed by the kind of elegance of the film. It has, a, there's a certain kind of simplicity. And again, it goes back to that kind of analog era, lo-fi quality, but there's something kind of like, I don't know very elegant about a lot of the a lot of the staging a lot of the you know visual ideas there's nothing gimmicky there's nothing you know we didn't undercrank so that people are running fast you know like everything sort of has has a kind of nice uh,
1: elegance to it that's great well first of all I think you should watch it again because it's a really good movie yeah I highly <laughs> <watched it. laughs> But also like, I'm so grateful that you kept so many things because I mean, again, I mean, you mentioned a photo earlier, but like, whatever, if you've got pictures or something that looks interesting, like this stuff is like candy to us. Like we would love to see more of, of whatever you've got. Um, if only for the archi- archival reasons, you know?
2: I, I'll, I have a couple of key photos that I would love to share with you. And um, uh, one of which I included couple of which I included in my book, but I'll send you them so that you'll have them in bigger form. And if, if you have, uh, if you, if your listeners, you know, have a website they can go to, to see them, that'd be great.
1: We do. It's called toughpigs.com and people hopefully hey, will be I, I, looking at the I, at the uh, at the show notes anyway. Show notes. See, I'll I'll chuck it up whatever whatever on the socials, it'll
0: all be good. <laughs>
2: oh yeah. No, no, no. I mean they, and they and they are they're they're kind of cool photos too. So I would love to share them with you. But I particularly want you to see this shot of like the dodo house in the, in miniature. Yeah. I just find it's kind of just a I don't know, it's such a cool thing.
0: Amazing.
1: Yeah, and again, no one's doing that stuff anymore. Everything's computers. Everything's like you know done in post production. And to see the care that it took to makes uh, you know the, the, that kind of shot, and and honestly, the whole movie to look as great as it does, um, and the work that went behind it, uh, it's impressive. It's just everything about it is impressive.
2: Well, I'm again so grateful that people continue to enjoy it, and I'm thrilled that. That uh, you both invited me to be part of this, it, it, I love, I, I love. I mean, it's it's so exciting to talk to both of you uh, about it, and uh, I could keep going. <laughs>
1: so.
0: I know us too, us yes. Too. Uh, but we have taken up a lot of your time. Um, so, Ken, what we do is we wrap up every episode with uh, a set of questions. Um, mm-hmm. I have my own. Joe has his own. Being my week, uh, I'll be reading mine out. Uh, rapid fire, as quick as you want. Expand if you okay. like. Don't feel you have to. Um question one. What is the food that you hate?
2: Oh my gosh. Well I'm I'm a
0: pescatarian. Mm-hmm.
2: So I certainly don't like hamburgers anymore.
0: Fair enough. Uh what is your go-to karaoke song? Oh my gosh.
2: Well the last time I was forced to <laughs> go to a karaoke bar, I was also I was forced to I didn't have a choice, but they, my friends, insisted that I sing uh, the Aha song,
0: "Take on Me." I mean, it's a banger! (laughs) It's a banger. Oh, what the! What it's those depending. high notes, no, though, it, that's a All
2: challenge. it does is it keeps going higher and yeah. higher and higher and <laughs> higher. Yeah. So I would say, is it my favorite? Uh, it, it's, it's, I would say that I have wonderfully painful memories of trying to hit a few of those oh, high and notes. If
0: you, and, if, <laughs> and if you're not going to hit those high notes and you know halfway through the chorus that you're not going to hit it and you're like, oh, I'm just going to have to go for it anyway. <laughs> um, what is the sound of one hand clapping?
2: Oh my gosh I was just thinking about that the other day um I think it, I, I, I I think that the sound goes something like this. I'm sure you get that response
0: from others uh, possibly what what great podcast fodder. <laughs> <laughs> everyone, you want to hear some silence <laughs> um, pick a number between one and 250 Oh 16. Sixteen. Okay, I have a list of uh two hundred and fifty questions here. Let me go to number sixteen. Uh, what is your go-to guilty pleasure?
2: Oh my gosh, guilty pleasure. Well, I have to say, I, I among many guilty pleasures, is I I, I uh I'm not sure I, it's it's a particularly guilty pleasure, but I do love watching uh films with uh, Dean Martin and Jerry Lewis in them. Mm, great choice.
0: I'm not sure that even
2: qualifies as a guilty pleasure
0: anymore. Just a pleasure. Just a pleasure. Yeah. Um, Yeah. In our last episode, uh, Bob McGrath, also in Follow That Bird, um, not knowing Mm -hmm. who our guest was going to be, wanted us to ask you, uh, what are you doing in your life that you had no intention of doing?
2: Oh, my gosh. Well, I mean, the answer is, and I'm not sure I'm answering the right question, but I never, in a bazillion years, imagined that I would be directing the Muppets ever. So I, I, I you know, I, I coming out of film school, I certainly fancied myself a a different sort of filmmaker entirely. And I think it was um, sitting meeting Jim Henson for the first time, and the moment that Kermit introduced himself to me, that I realized that uh, oh. I need to be part of this. I need to be part of this really magic thing.
0: You're not wrong. and that well, Joe and I have both so... had experiences uh, getting to hang out with Muppets in real life, and it's something that you can't explain to people who haven't uh, who haven't experienced it themselves.
2: Yeah, I, I it, again, I, I it wasn't like I was in Jim's office by accident. I was there to interview for a job. I knew what I was go- going in for, but I think I you know imagined myself as a A director of different kinds of things and uh if somebody said you're going to direct a sesame street film i would have laughed but meeting jim being awed by him as a person and then being sort of gobsmacked when kermit started talking to me i said okay i'm in please (laughs) Please let me do this. <laughs> uh,
0: finally, without knowing who it is, what question would you like our next guest to answer?
2: Oh my gosh! Without knowing who it is, well, if it's a puppeteer, wow, that's a great question. Um, I would love to. Uh, I would love to ask your next guest what. Muppet film they would love to see be made.
0: Oh, good one!
2: Is there a Muppet film that hasn't been made yet that they would uh, they would love to see?
1: That's I a love great it. question. That is a fantastic question. I want to ask. I want to ask everybody that question. <laughs> <laughs> um, Ken, what Muppet film would you want to oh, see yeah. be made? You know, I, have I, to, I, to, I, I mean, hate I to jump have the gun to. for next week, but no, oh, no, I. I uh,
2: I haven't really thought about it, but I, I do like the idea of another um, Sesame Street film focusing on one of the secondary characters in the in the in the group. You know, I love the idea. I mean, I love the idea of a, a whole film about Oscar the Grouch. I mean, I think that audiences I would, would I would watch really that, love yeah. it. a film yeah, a film about a really you know crotchety character, a real Ebenezer Scrooge character, who. Uh, you know who doesn't like kind people but loves broken toasters <laughs>
0: <laughs> um all right let's pitch it yeah. let's make it happen exactly. we'll do it. uh Ken, thank you for i mean thank you i mean you've had an amazing career thank you for all the other stuff you've worked on but thank you for follow that bird what a film um one right. one of the few 10 out of 10 movies in my uh in my books um thank, thank you me. for coming on thank you for talking to us um uh, your book, by the way, you mentioned it before, is called "But What I Really Want to Do Is Direct uh, Lessons from a Life Behind the Camera." Uh, like I said, they've been nice enough to send me a copy, so I've been going through it, and it's fantastic—not just to follow that bird oh. stuff, or oh, everything's fantastic. Um, so, Thanks. thank you very much.
2: Well, again, I will—I'm going to send you a few photos, and uh, please—you uh, know—if you, if you feel free to use them in any way you'd like, I think they're kind of fun. Amazing.